and I've seen how clients with like anything, business, real estate, there's risk. And, and when the economy shifts and demand contracts a little bit, you can find yourself in a position where you need to carry some costs and you, you should have reserves. You should have six to 12 months of operating expenses ready, or you should have access to lines of credit to pull from in a pinch. And I've seen people not put themselves in a position and I've felt their pain and I've seen them try to get out of a property that they're underwater on. And by the way, they also fur, uh, you know, finance their $30,000 of furniture to furnish the place and they're, and, and they got to bring money to closing that they don't have. And that's when, like you said, you get into foreclosure, short sale, um, really hurting your credit and hurting yourself for not just, you know, not just the near term and the stress, but also the next decade of trying to trying to recover from that financially. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. Today, we have Connor Cushman on the podcast with us. Connor's a real estate agent that helps investors in Georgia and Florida, helping them find the best properties for short-term rentals. He also has his own portfolio of short-term rentals. And between everything from investment all the way through to the property management, finding the right property, managing that successfully as an investment, uh, Connor is building out a niche specialty there to support people who want to get into real estate. And I think a lot of people do. I know for me, I, I have for a long time and I've chosen kind of an unconventional route. Maybe we'll talk about it later, but would love to hear today all the ways that leverage comes into play. So Connor, thanks uh, for being on the podcast. And uh, why don't you just open up and tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Sure thing, Spencer. It's good to be with you. I currently, like you said, I live in North Georgia, the North Metro Atlanta, North Georgia area, and am operating, managing my short-term rental portfolio. Right now I've got five short-term rentals and two long-term rentals. So I initially got into real estate on the long-term rental side mm -hmm. uh, before, before kind of crossing into short-term rentals where I saw more, more leverage and more opportunity but got my start in real estate as a real estate agent and was building both the portfolio and the, and the agent business while navigating a career in tech and trying to bridge that gap and make that transition from tech employee to, to real estate entrepreneur, so to speak. And uh, I feel like I'm really just getting started. I've laid a nice foundation with the portfolio and the sales business and excited to see how I can kind of leverage what I built so far into uh, property management and other kind of education and, and tech businesses from here. Yeah, I love that element of your story. I think one of the things that I've seen over and over again is just, you know, constraints breed creativity. I forget the original quote, but the way that like when you find yourself in a hard situation, that's often where some of the biggest breakthroughs come out. And so obviously, uh, you know, you graduated from from college, you're thinking I'm going to go work in tech. Obviously, tech's very popular, often hailed for work life balance. But you go out to LinkedIn, you're working at LinkedIn, and you realize as you're about to have a kid, hey, maybe this isn't quite as flexible or as good as I thought it was. And maybe I need to find something that is a little bit more flexible and can offer me more of that balance I want in my life. Tell me about that experience and like what then led you to real estate specifically? Yeah, it's it's a good call out. So I found myself in this very interesting position as I was transitioning away from school. I, got, I landed this super exciting, competitive LinkedIn internship. It's like the dream internship. And at the end of the summer, I convert uh, to a full-time rotational program. Again, very competitive, very desirable. And I go back to my senior year of school, graduate, join this program. 
and I'm out there. And like you mentioned, uh, something I talk about is that uh, my start date was uh, October and, and we had a baby two weeks later, my first baby boy. And the experience of kind of finding myself in what I thought was the dream career, the dream job, and really it is an amazing career and job. The benefits are incredible. The people are brilliant. The, uh, the opportunities are there. But returning back to work and seeing the way my day was going to look for the foreseeable future of waking up before my son was awake, riding the train into San Francisco for an hour and a half, like a pack of sardines, uh, walk into the office, long days at the office, often social events afterwards that you kind of felt obliged to attend in order to advance your career. And even if I didn't have those, again, kind of riding that train back home and getting home just for that last half hour to an hour of awake time for my son, which was often one of the most difficult hours because he's tired, he's fussy, he's getting ready for bed. My wife's over it. It's, it just wasn't a pleasant experience. And, and so kind of taking a step back and looking at where real estate kind of fit into this journey and, and provided the solution or the path to where I am now, I actually read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 12. Uh, <laughs> my dad uh, fortunately handed me that book and told me to read it. And for whatever reason, I loved it. I've read it a couple of times since then, but I had this kind of seed planted in my head, probably like many people that real estate is a way to build wealth and build financial freedom, create options for yourself. And so I started to kind of lean into that and figure out how, you know, what, what is my plan? How do I get real estate to facilitate a way out of this career? But I knew that it would take time. And so it did, and it did take time. I had, uh, I, I still carried that, that LinkedIn career for a couple of years while I was building the, the real estate portfolio and the sales business um, until I quit uh, really only a year ago. But uh, it's been it's been a really enjoyable journey. All right. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad essentially planted the seed. And then when you were looking for some of that balance, you decided while you're still working at LinkedIn on the side, you're going to get the real estate side started. Did you move to Georgia while you were still working at LinkedIn? Did you have that flexibility? And, and so was it kind of leveraging a remote job that allowed you then to be present yeah. somewhere somewhere else? Talk about that. Yeah. So I as we all know, COVID created a lot of opportunities for a lot of us. Um, there were obviously challenges with COVID, but for for us and my family, it, it was a great opportunity. And it wasn't without its own kind of challenges or fear or feelings of taking a risk to say, hey, the job's remote. At the time, there was no clear timeline for how soon we'd have to be back into the office in San Francisco. And I was very junior, so I would likely have to be back in office. But we said, as soon as COVID the, the COVID writing was on the wall. My wife and I decided to, to make the jump back to Georgia where we knew there was opportunity to build the business that we now have built. And we felt like there was opportunity to create a portfolio, create a business. And, um, and ultimately that first step for us was getting into that first house. And I, I feel like that was really one of my first examples of seeing the power of like financial leverage, um, leveraging that first house. So when you bought that house, was it immediately an investment or did you move in and then turn it into an investment? Did you start with like house hacking or renting out part of the house? What, what was kind of that initial step for you into real estate while you still had your job? Yeah. So I've heard the term, I've heard this term rental waking. It's this idea of you kind of leave a wake of rentals behind you as you move from house to house. I didn't know that term at the time and house hacking was starting to become more popular which for those who don't know is, is kind of, you know, creating income from either a duplex or, or where you rent out a basement apartment, you create, you generate income to either offset your housing expense or create cash flow. 
I didn't necessarily have the area that I lived in didn't, and like a lot of areas didn't have a lot of multifamily housing. And so our, our idea was let's just get a house that we know will make a good rental and is livable and comfortable, but we can also add value to it over the nine, 12 months that we live there and move on and cash flow and roll that into the next house. And so that's what we did. That first house was $200,000. We put 3% down. I was an agent, so uh, my commission was the down payment. Got the closing costs mostly covered, so we essentially walked into that yeah, house. That was that was brilliant. I've never even heard that before, but that is incredible. So you're saying you actually, because you're the agent, you put 3% down via the person you're buying it from. So you came in, you didn't need any dollars out of pocket to close. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Because yeah, it, that you're getting from, through, yeah. from the transaction is going into the actual sale. Yeah. And the way it may have played out is maybe I, you know, at, at closing day, I had to, you know, wire some money and then I, and then I walked out with a check. And so there was maybe this. Okay. So there's stage. a little bit that floated but, for a month or two, but yeah, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> I've never thought about it in that way, but what a good argument for even just getting a real estate license. Like that's so powerful that you can go in there and on the transaction where you're purchasing your own house that can go in as a down payment. Anyways, that was a cool insight. So just wanted to call right. that out. And maybe it's not a rabbit hole we want to go down. I don't think it's a good argument for everyone getting a real estate license because <laughs> as I as as I look back and even then, you know, my intentions when I got licensed was to build what I've since built, which is a, a producing real estate sales business and and I'm good at it and and I can save myself and others money uh, much better than an agent who you know, only gets licensed for their own deal. So I, do, I don't think that is actually a sound strategy. You're much better off finding like a really top quality agent and they'll save you way more money than you could uh, with the commission. Uh, and I really believe that if you're disciplined about finding the best agent, um, most people aren't. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there's that. Too. Yeah, there's there's the other argument of they probably just go with their cousin. Like exactly. Like so if you're going to hire your cousin or your uncle, then yeah, get your own license and... But yeah. But but the way I really think about that is more in terms of people who want to get in. I've seen several businesses yeah. where they build a real estate business, but they never get the license. Right. And I'm thinking to those people like, man, that's such a tool to be making money in the transaction that can accelerate how your growth goes. So in any case, yeah, definitely not an argument for everyone to get a license. But I can see I've never thought of it that way. That was a really cool insight. So anyways, you, you put three percent down, you get yeah. into this house, keep taking us from there. Yeah. So mind you, I didn't grow up understanding how to like change a tire or a light fixture, or I didn't, I didn't, I don't know anything about home design. I've since learned, you know, how to change light fixtures and do things. If I need to, I, I hire most of that stuff out anyway, but we went into that property knowing that we could add some value in, in simple ways. So we painted the whole house, we changed the light fixtures, we freshened it all up. We, you know, when it was time to rent it out nine months later or so, we knew that we were going to be able to collect a rent that was going to cash flow us about $500 a month. And is that, is that because of the market? Is it because of the deal when you first buy it? Is it because uh, of the work you put in? Maybe a little bit of all as you're yeah. looking at that, what, what were some of the very key elements that allowed you to be successful with this house waking strategy? Yeah. So at the, so at the time of purchase, you know, we're, we're understanding what are our total costs going to be? You, you got your PITI, your payment interest, taxes, and insurance, you got your HOA, uh, maybe some pest control. In this case, the the landscaping was included. We opted to uh, include garage or sorry, garbage service in in the rent or whatever, right? And, and then we're plugging that address into a tool called Rentometer, which is a tool for analyzing long term rents. And coupled with looking at uh, the available inventory on Zillow, 
we're coming up with an estimated rent number. Usually you can do that with a pretty high degree of confidence within a range of a couple hundred bucks. And so we knew at closing that we were going to have monthly obligations of roughly $1,300 and that the monthly rent was going to be roughly uh, $1,800, right? Gotcha. Um, and, and that was a combination of interest rates at the time. Obviously that moves the payment uh, prices at the time. This, yeah, this was only, this was only three years ago. This is 2020. Yeah. So that's part of what you have to be looking out for. There are certainly things that can move the needle on what those costs could be and what that rent number could be. And so you're planning for all that at the point of purchase. And hey, if it also goes up in value and interest rates do things that make it favorable favorable for you, et cetera, all the better. But you're sort of planning for the, the downside risk, banking on what is a, a most likely scenario, and then uh, moving forward. Right. And and But we knew... You know the the yeah the downside risk was low and we knew that it wasn't just the cash flow it was and and since we've we've seen you know every month we're in october right uh, maybe yep. i shouldn't say that but yeah okay. we're in we're in late 2023 and my my tenant's rent is about to come in and then my mortgage payment's going to get paid and i'm getting another five six hundred dollars of principal pay down in addition to the cash flow i'm also getting tax benefits that are going to offset my active income because of my my real estate professional status and so there's just like the i'm now three years removed from the start of that deal and at the time i was so nervous to to do that um and it's just gotten better and better over time and it's it's totally expanded my wealth doing that not just once but several times now and, and I was able to put, you know, maybe let's call it a thousand to three thousand dollars that I put into that deal that, you know, has just gone to work for me and worked like a dog, worked way harder than I have worked the last three years. Awesome. Yeah. So that's exciting. So then you get that first one under your belt. Uh, you're still working at LinkedIn. So did you move? You said nine months. Is that a, is that unit of time important? Is there a certain speed at, with which you can move these as your house waking? This is like a lending gray area and a mortgage fraud gray area. So I don't want to incriminate myself or anyone else. It's circumstantial and you have to w just kind of work on that with your lender and understand the, the lending guidelines and what you're agreeing to when you sign a mortgage. In my case, there was a very good case for the growth of our family and expanding into a bigger property. And so we were able to mm -hmm. do that, um, you know, at, in that time frame. Uh, but generally speaking, the general rule of thumb is like 12 months. Okay. So commonly, if you're house waking, it's going to be about 12 months before you're able to move. Yeah. And is that because of usually the type of loans that you're getting? It's like a primary residence loan. And so uh, you have to be there for a certain amount of time. Is that how that works? Correct. Correct. Cool. Yeah. And it just depends on the loan product, right? And, and that's sure. one of the, yeah. So that's important to obviously understand uh, based on if what you know what loan aligns to what your investment strategy is. Yeah. But you get through that one, and it sounds like you kept doing it. And in subsequent years, did was but I mean, if you're at five now and it's been three years, sounds like five short term and two long term. Sounds like maybe the long terms were part of the house waking, and the short terms followed a different path. Correct. Yeah. So we we've only ended up doing a, a one. We we have a very small wake. We've got. We've got, we're, we're in that second version of that, but we've ended up being here for two years because of the way interest rates and prices went. That next long-term rental will, you know, be in the portfolio here in the next few months as we move on to the next house. But the, the focus really shifted to short-term rentals um, after that first kind of rental wake, that, that first long-term rental. And it's the short-term rentals where there was this huge opportunity to, again, take advantage of the low interest rates and certain loan products that we can get into the, the, the vacation home, the second home vacation home loan. Um, again, following the lending guidelines, make sure you're doing that right. Um, allowed us to get into multiple 
kind of vacation homes that we could also Airbnb and see a much higher uh, cash flow and, and income generation from those properties. So, so that's where the, the energy went. Let's talk about, was there ever any big challenges so far or setbacks or failures that were amplified by leverage? And you, you mentioned this is a really important thing with real estate and with financial leverage in general, which is that financial leverage is dangerous. Like you can't say it enough because, you know, oh, I got this loan and it's great because, you know, I couldn't have $500,000 to play with otherwise. Well, that's great. But if you bought a house way at an inflated price and now you're upside down on it, that's going to weigh on you for a long, long time, either because you're going to go bankrupt and now your credit's destroyed for eight plus years or you're uh, going to be trying to pay it off and you're going to not be able to make any money or get by. I mean, there's just massive. It amplifies all the outcomes, the good and the bad. And so have you had any examples so far in your career where you think that leverage sort of amplified a failure? And if so, what did you learn from him? Yeah. So fortunately, uh, so I was, I was born in, in 94 and I was in high school during the 2008, 2009 recession. So like many of my peers, I think we have a deep rooted fear of financial failure. And mm. that's been something that I've carried around and I've had to kind of wrestle with that and and figure out what, what is the appropriate amount of fear to, to carry around and be cautious and wise versus letting it cripple my ability to take risks and go after the things that I feel confident that I can go after. And so I think that's in my psyche and probably the psyche of many uh, that are around that kind of generation who grew up and saw either their parents or their parents' friends or their neighbors uh, foreclosing on their homes, losing their cars. I certainly saw some of that. All that to say, I've carried some of that through my investing journey, uh, some of that fear and cautiousness that has led me to make wise decisions and carry a portfolio. Just to give an exa a specific example, uh, my real estate portfolio probably runs at about 65, 60% LTV. So I have a lot of equity sitting in my properties and I didn't use that first successful property to then go get a HELOC to, as the down payment for the next property. I, I played it a little slower than I, than I could have. And I, I focused on more income generation as the tool for borrowing power for additional loans and down payments. And, and I took all of the extra income because keep in mind, I was building a, a fairly successful real estate sales business while also having a nice tech salary. And, and yet it felt like we were living on almost nothing because it was all just getting poured back into the business. And so rather than taking advantage of too much leverage, I feel like I used an appropriate amount of leverage to, to grow the portfolio. I did get a lot of loans. I, I did put as little down as I could on all those properties. So in, in some ways that was aggressive, but in other ways I was operating with reserve funds. I was not over leveraging my properties. And on the flip side, to get to the answer to your question, Basically, I just made myself sound awesome, which is kind of not the point. <laughs> but out of an abundance of fear, that's the way I operated. And I have unfortunately been in the position to see clients and peers in my world who did not operate that way. And what sort of financial turmoil and stress that causes when you, when you do, um, you know, you put 10% down on a home and then it appreciates a little bit, and then you go get a HELOC and, and suck up the rest of that equity to go do something else uh, or to buy a car or another property that doesn't cash flow really well. And, and Oh, God, are people buying cars on HELOCs? 
I'm, I, I'm sure. I, I mean, I've seen some of that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Way to turn an asset into a liability in five yeah. seconds. Yeah. Oh, God, that's so painful. Yeah. Right. So, so, it, and I've seen how clients with like anything, business, real estate, there's risk. And, and when the economy shifts and demand contracts a little bit, you can find yourself in a position where you need to carry some costs and you, you should have reserves. You should have six to 12 months of operating expenses ready, or you should have access to lines of credit to pull from in a pinch. And I've seen people not put themselves in a position and I've felt their pain and I've seen them try to get out of a property that they're underwater on. And by the way, they also for, uh, you know, finance their $30,000 of furniture to furnish the place and they're, and, and they got to bring money to closing that they don't have. And that's when, like you said, you get into foreclosure, short sale, um, really hurting your credit and hurting yourself for not just, you know, not just the near term and the stress, but also the next decade of trying to trying to recover from that financially. So um, I've certainly had other challenges, but that's the one that comes to mind that doesn't necessarily highlight a, a failure of mine per se, but a failure that I've been really close to. And yeah. it, hurts. it hurts to watch that. And so, you, you, you know, you have to be you have to be thoughtful. Yeah. Something I think not enough people think about and are aware of is this concept of survivorship bias, where when you see some of the people who succeed at the biggest levels that took massive risks to get there, you don't see all of the people that failed doing the same thing. And so you can look at someone and there are people in real estate who are filthy rich because they leveraged the shit out of every single opportunity. They went and said, all right, as soon as I have equity, I'm flipping it into the next house and the next house. And they happened to do that at the right time when the market was supporting them doing that and they didn't get crushed and they built a massive portfolio during a booming market. And then you look at them now and they're like, I got, you know, hundreds of millions of net worth in real estate or whatever all these doors, whatever, whatever metric you're judging sort of success by. And you go, man, that's the path. That's the way to do it. What you don't see is all the other people who tried that, who either didn't have the timing right, made a mistake along the way, just got screwed in a bad deal. Market went sideways, a divorce screwed up their personal life, what have you, anything. And then they get down the road and they're out of business and they have nothing to show for it because they over leveraged themselves and they found themselves in a really high risk situation where all it took was one or two of the wrong things. And now they're out of business. And I do think that both from a peace of mind standpoint, as well as just a sound long-term business strategy standpoint, balancing how much risk you're willing and wanting to take with the outcomes you actually want is important because if you know what the outcomes are you're looking for, Spending a little longer to get there, getting there a lot more assuredly, not ending up in a situation where your life's falling apart and you're miserable and you're getting no sleep and you're taking on extra jobs to try to make ends meet and what have you. That's such a massive benefit. And it speaks to actually something that uh, I saw you post about just recently on social media, which is this concept of enough. What is enough? Because if you don't know what enough is, you can get lost in leverage. You can get lost trying to get more leverage, to get bigger impact, to make more money, to you know do something bigger. And you can end up just, I mean, I think that's the term for it, just lost in leverage and, and super high risk and maybe in a really bad spot. So how do you think about this idea of what enough is? Because I know you had to go from having a comf comfortable tech salary plus sort of real estate income, and you had to make some short-term trade-offs you know, to, to even get started in real estate in terms of dumping money in, you just mentioned that. And then I'm sure the going into full-time real estate and giving up the tech salary, there's a short-term setback to that in terms of income. So how do you think about what is enough and having enough? It's a great question. Um, I'm 29 and 
I feel like I might not answer your question, but the way I'm thinking about that question and many others, like what is enough? Who do I want to be? What are my values? What do I want to work on? Who do I want to work with? I see myself in the, where I am in my journey. And for others, that this might start a few years earlier because they were able to just jump right into entrepreneurship a little earlier than I, I did or later. I see the answer to that question as kind of this like testing iterative process of what is enough. And I don't think that's a great answer for the question of what is enough, because to your point, you can just kind of get lost in the leverage and uh, what what's the uh, what's the movie where there's the spinning top and they just get lost. Inception. In Inception. Yeah, I, I had Inception flash into my mind when you're talking about that, like you just get lost. And uh, anyway, I don't I don't really know what is enough, because what I have found is that from even, you know, a year ago or three years ago, my perception of so many things that are important to answer that question has completely evolved in ways that I couldn't expect. I remember not that many years ago thinking that if I could just have a $500,000 home, that is all I'll ever need. And at the time, a $500,000 home was epic. And now uh, yeah, things have changed. And so there, I mean, that's one example of how things evolve. Another example is is just shifting away from W2 life into self-employed life and realizing uh, for me how much potential and limitless opportunity there is to make money or help people or start businesses. And, and so I'm trying to figure that out. I think, I think I still have a couple of years where as long as I'm asking the right questions and doing the, you know, talking to the right people and reflecting and pausing, uh, I'll come to a better answer over over the next few years, and I hope I hope that I do. I don't. I, I'm not too optimistic that I will get a clear uh, dollar amount, but I think it's a, a constant like iterative process and checking in on what's most important. Am I staying connected to my faith? Am I staying connected to uh, my family? Am I staying connected to uh, what I feel like God wants me to do on this earth? Am, am I staying connected to uh, what, what is most important and not selling out for more money. Um, so, you know, those are, those are the things I'm thinking about and answer that question. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good framework. You know, I, I think the the important concept is there's never enough. There's just never enough unless you choose for there to be enough. So short of making a choice about what enough is in the various aspects of your life, there will never be enough because you can always find a reason to want more. And, and it's very much that a hedonistic treadmill, right? That, that people talk about that you can just, you, you, we will acclimate to any level of income, any house, you know, if you anchor it to something like, Oh, if my house is this big, I want this mansion and then I'll feel good. As soon as you're in that mansion for six months, a year, you're like, this is normal. Everyone I know has mansions like this, but this one guy I know has a mansion 10 times this big, or he has a mansion like this, but he also has these 10 cars and I don't have the cars. And now I just need the cars to go with the house. And then, you know, once I get that, then, oh man, but now he has uh, the vacation home too. And, and we don't have that. And so you can always find, you know, the next thing that is like, Oh, well, actually, I'm, I'm not good enough now until I do that. And so the mistake is ever placing your happiness hostage to some future outcome, right? And, and I think that's the biggest thing I've had to work on is coming back to the present moment, appreciating the way things are, and then loving what we have right now, 
appreciating how great that is in the grand scheme of history and in the scheme of the larger world. The fact that just to live in the U.S. and have a good paying job at all is absolute luxury compared to what most people, the conditions most people live in. And to have sort of a sense of gratitude and appreciation. The the downside to the gratitude and appreciation is it doesn't make you feel super motivated to go work hard. <laughs> and they've done studies on this. So the more you surround yourself, interestingly, if you surround yourself, let's say the five people you spend the most time with are people that make less money than you, you will feel less driven to go do bigger things, but you'll be happier. And on the other hand, if you surround yourself with five people who are all more successful than you, you'll be extremely driven to go do bigger, better things, but you won't be very happy. And so our happiness is so comparative. And so I think that a lot of the answer to that question of what is enough comes down to a couple of elements. One is, who do I choose to surround me? And are, is it the right proportions? Because I need a certain amount of people where... The friendship, the family, et cetera, the love is the whole thing. And I'm never comparing with them and I'm never feeling jealous or competing or trying to get ahead. And they're probably all going to be in similar income to me or less, which to me increases my happiness. And then there's a certain amount of exposure I need to people. If I do want to maintain my ambition, if I do want to try to grow, because I think that it's valuable to want to grow, there's a lot of reasons for that. But if, if I, if I want to do that, then I need to be spending a certain amount of time around people that help elevate that vision. And so to me, that mix is kind of, I want my default to be with my people and feeling happy, feeling happy in my house, in my home, with my family, with loved ones and making the time I'm spending there increase the happiness. And then a certain amount of time at retreats with other founders, uh, networking, et cetera, making friendships with people that are ahead of me that keep me learning and growing and elevating my vision. And that's, that's just a balance someone has to figure out. But you see people that are like, they're all in on one or the other, like all that matters is happiness. So you need to just do that. And I'm like, that's fine. But a lot of people who go all in on like spending the most time with their family, you know, just ever doing things that make them happy, they may have higher happiness, but they won't accomplish as big of things. I haven't seen, at least I haven't seen those people. And then there's people that you listen to that are gurus and whatnot that are like, make sure that the people you spend your time with all are more successful than you. And they're fully on the other side of the spectrum. Like, that's fine, but you might not be very happy. You'll work hard and you'll go build something massive, but you know, how happy will you be? And so I think those things are, are the two ends of the spectrum. And if you can find the right middle ground, then that's where, that's where I've tried to be is in the, in the middle of those two where I'm happy enough, but also still driven enough. And that's, that's a balance. Yeah. And I think, I think a way to kind of pressure test that or evaluate where, where you are with that is, is on the time, how we spend our time. And so I think what you just shared resonates with me a lot. We spent a lot of, of this conversation talking about financial leverage and, and technology and, and things like that. But as you, as you make more money, you start to realize that the time resource is the most precious resource. And so it's the ability to leverage your time becomes the, the most important form of leverage. And the way we spend our time is ultimately the best evaluation of, are we, do we have enough? Are we, are we spending the time the way we, we want to that will, uh, and, and that means there's a mix of work and healthy work, uh, achieving our potential, fulfilling, you know, what we want to accomplish professionally and financially, um, and then family and faith and, and service and all those other great things. And so I've been thinking more about how am I spending my time and protect, and to your point, protecting, at, going back to kind of the mistakes I've made where maybe I've over leveraged my time and exposed myself to too many demands on my time, too many clients, too many properties, too many guests messaging me. 
and I found myself in at points where I'm miserable and I'm not actually um, living a life according to the way I want to live because my time is over leveraged and and not matching my desired state. So I think it, I think that's a better uh, litmus test for a lot of us is how am I spending my time and is it aligned with kind of you know my my ultimate desired happiness and, and purpose. Yeah, that's a great insight. All right, as we wrap up, uh, any recommendations? If you went back five years and we're talking to a younger version of yourself, knowing everything you know now, is there a specific book, masterclass, uh, relationship, piece of advice, uh, anything that you would say to younger Connor to help yourself get to some of the things you're enjoying now faster? Yeah, a couple of book recommendations specific to real estate, money, um, leverage would be the richest man in Babylon. I think nails this principle down of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, putting your dollars to work, sending them out and becoming little workers for you. I think, uh, that that's a great book there. Rich dad, poor dad, obviously is a great real estate fundamentals book. If you haven't read it, everyone pretty much has at this point, the four hour work week is a book that really shaped the way I think about a lot of things. It can make you feel like things should be easier than they actually are. I think there's some really unrealistic uh, teachings in that book, like many books, uh, but there are some really good frameworks. One in particular from that book that I talk about all the time is fear setting and appropriately uh, assigning risks and, and the amount of fear that you should to a decision like investing in real estate or starting a business. So I think that's a great principle from that book. And some of the best advice I got when I was about 21 was that every piece of it's tempting to get an insight or a piece of advice or listen to a podcast and think that that is the gospel by which you should live and run full speed with that piece of advice. And I even fall into that trap from time to time. And the advice I got was that every piece of advice is a data point that you put on a plot map, and then you ultimately have to draw the line that um, you know creates the the direction for your life, and so you should seek out lots of data points, lots of advice. You should gather lots of input, but then ultimately you have to decide what that line is, and you should not act on one piece of of advice or data. And and I think when you're young, it's tempting to just jump at one thing, but you should uh, again kind of be a gatherer and and then move forward. The temptation is to gather too much information. And so you do have to couple that with action. And, and so taking action, taking risk, building the, the muscle of risk, maybe starting with trying a new food or, you know, going cliff jumping with your friends, like push yourself to take risks so that ultimately you have that muscle and strength to, to take a risk on buying a real estate property or starting a business. It's always going to feel scary. The fear does not go away. I still get scared when I buy real estate and I bought it a bunch and I help people buy it all the time. And I see the fear cycle. They all get scared. Everyone gets scared and you just have to push through it and, and build that skill. That's awesome. All right. As we, uh, as we end, is there anything else that you want to just let the audience know about advertise, promote any message you want to leave them with? Just connect with me. I'm, I feel like I'm really early in my, in my business and I, and I feel like I have a lot to offer to the world and I will offer a lot more. So I'm not looking to sell anything right now, but I'd love for anyone who feels like they connected with anything I shared to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Those are the two um, platforms where I put out a lot of uh, what I think is good information. So on LinkedIn, it's uh, Connor Cushman. And on Instagram, it's at Cushman Holmes. So connect with me there. I, I do a free weekly newsletter with a couple of interesting properties and tips about short-term rentals and real estate. 
uh, lots of good stuff in there. People really like it. It's about a thousand subscribers now. So get on there, stay connected with me and um, let me know how I can help you in your journey. Awesome, Connor. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and we will talk soon. Thanks, Spencer. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. Solved.cloud. That's S O L V D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.